Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. As Pastor Owen mentioned last week, we are starting not just an Advent series in the beginning of the book of Luke, but we're planning for the next year to spend much of our time working our way through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we look at chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Please give your full attention to God's Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Earlier this past week, I came across an article that was an interview with a woman named Brooke Hemphill. She is the head of the research department for the Barna Group. You probably recognize, recognize the name Barna. It's known for its research studies, its surveys, its polling, in order to get a sense of what people are thinking about culture particularly and specifically about matters of faith. The focus of the interview was on what the Barna Corporation, the Barna Group, has been finding out about people under the age of 35 and their views of matters of faith, particularly Christians under the age of 35. The groups that we would call millennials, Generation X, I guess the most recent generation they're calling Generation Z. I appreciated very much her perspective. I thought it was very balanced. I mean, she there's a tendency that we have among generations to judge one another's generation and only focus upon what's bad about either the generation that came before us or the generation that comes after us. But it was really, I thought, a very balanced presentation that she gave of what she saw as the positives from a Christian point of view as well as the negatives. But she did say at one point that 
the biggest question that this age group, again, we're talking about adults or about people, but generally speaking, under the age of 35, the biggest question this age group is facing is what is truth? And of course, that jumped out at me because I thought immediately of the question that Jesus was asked when he stood before Pilate. Pilate asked him, what is truth? Isn't it interesting how that question never goes away? Every generation has to answer that question, what is truth? But she went on to talk about this age group, and she said, they don't know what truth is. We, she said, we have tracked that question forever, forever, and increasingly so, the truth to them is relative. It is defined by what you feel in your heart, and what society tells you. In light of that, it is interesting that later in the interview, she was asked about the fact that the Barna Group had found out in one of its extensive surveys that among that age group, under 35, when asked about sharing their faith, 47% say that it is wrong for them to share their faith with someone who is of a different faith. What's interesting is that she went on to say, when asked about how to explain that, how to understand that, she said, well, you have to keep in mind there's some inconsistency because she also says they have also found out that nine out of 10 of these same young Christians said that the best thing that could happen to someone is for them to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet, the spirit of our age, which is opposed to concepts of absolute truth, has so immersed the thinking that they feel it's wrong to share their faith with someone who doesn't have it. To tell someone of another faith that they are wrong about Jesus Christ, who he is and why he came. Now, those of you who are under 35, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, okay, boomer. <laughs> How good was your generation at sharing your faith? And I have to very freely admit that we were terrible at it as well. Probably for far less empathetic reasons and far more selfish reasons. But really, isn't that the most important question that all of us have to address? Especially at Christmas season, when we hear these very familiar stories. We've heard these stories over and over and over again from the time we were small children. But every Christmas season is an opportunity for us to ask that basic question that every generation has to answer. What is truth? Who is Jesus Christ? And why did he come? Those are the two most important questions that anybody has to answer. Who is Jesus Christ and why did he come? Has God spoken to us? Can we know for absolute truth who Jesus Christ is and why he came? If God has spoken to us and told us who Jesus Christ is, then we can be sure about that truth and we can be confident in sharing that truth with others and confident that they need to hear it. As Pastor Owen mentioned last week, Luke was not a storyteller. He was not a, not a myth maker. He was a committed historian, committed to recording history as it actually happened. 
As he said back in chapter one, his purpose in writing this gospel of Luke that we read is to write an orderly account, a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. And so when you read these accounts, these actually very hard to believe accounts that we have at the beginning of his gospel especially, you have to ask the question, was Luke a good historian? Did he accurately record for us what truly happened? Either it did happen and we must believe it or it didn't happen and we must reject it. This passage that we just read tells us about the appearance of an angel. I've not ever seen an angel, never been visited by one. I doubt that anybody in this room has ever been visited by an angel. It's hard to believe. That part of the account is hard to believe. But the message that the angel brought from God was even harder to believe, as we will see. But the key sentence to this entire passage is near the end, where the angel Gabriel said, nothing will be impossible with God. Is that the God you believe in? The God who is omnipotent, omniscient, the God who is able to do all things, the God who cannot be told no, the God who cannot reach a limit, the God who is able to do all things according to his perfect will. Well, let's look at this good news from heaven that Gabriel brought. Verse 26 says, that, it says there that the angel Gabriel was sent from God. That's what Luke says. He was sent from God. Was he or wasn't he? He had been sent earlier to an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth and given to them a birth announcement that they, in spite of the fact not only that they were very old, but that Elizabeth had been barren her entire life, they were going to have a child in their old age. That was hard for Zechariah and Elizabeth to believe. As we saw last week, Zechariah struggled with believing it. But this message that he brings now in the passage we look at today was far more difficult to believe. Think about it. Gabriel was the first evangelist of the New Covenant era, wasn't he? We're all evangelists, but he was the first one. Sent from God with a message from God for all people to hear. Now, God had spoken in the Old Covenant era through his prophets sometimes through angels, but he'd been silent for 400 years. But he comes finally, God finally speaks after all that time, and he speaks through the angel Gabriel. As Gabriel had said to Zechariah, we saw back last week back in chapter 1, Gabriel said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. Do you believe his claim or don't you? That he actually stood in the very presence of God in the throne room of heaven and was sent from God with a message from God that we are to believe. A second baby was to be born, he says in this passage today. The baby for whom Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby was to prepare the way. The one that had been promised by the prophets, the Messiah, 
the Messiah that people long so deeply to see. If Luke is trustworthy in giving us what Gabriel said, what he actually said, if Luke is a trustworthy historian and witness to what Gabriel said, and if Gabriel is a trustworthy authority in giving us God's words, then this is what God tells us, and we must believe what he has told us is true. Well, let's look at the essence of his message. And I, my thesis for you this morning is that the essential, not everything in detail, but the essential elements of what God would have us know in order to be reconciled to him and have eternal life is in this birth announcement that Gabriel brings. And notice how he begins by focusing on the humanity of this Messiah. He was fully human. Not only was he fully human, but he was born into a disgraced, disreputable place, in a humble place. It's important to the message. The first surprise in Luke's account is the destination that Gabriel was sent to. He wasn't sent to a royal palace in Jerusalem. He wasn't sent to a royal palace in Rome. He wasn't even sent to the temple in Jerusalem. He was sent to Galilee. It helps to know that Galilee was the backwoods of Judea. It was the backwater culture of that place. The people who lived in the main part of Judea, down around Jerusalem, down near the temple, they looked at their northern relatives, their, the people who lived to the north in Galilee, they looked at them as though they were hicks from the country, uneducated, somewhat rebellious. That area up there was surrounded by Gentiles, and they felt that the, the beliefs and the practices even of their religion were corrupted by their neighbors. That's why in that passage you read a little bit earlier from Isaiah 9 too, it, we didn't read the beginning of that passage, which tells us that that prophecy, that very familiar prophecy, was given about the area that was called Galilee. And this is what it says about Galilee, about the Messiah being sent to that place. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. It wasn't just a Galilee, though. It was actually to a tiny place called Nazareth. Now, it says in the text here, in the ESV translation, to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. It wasn't a city. The word city in the original language is actually a very broad term, and it could be applied to a city, and sometimes it did mean a city in some context, but it also could mean a small town or a small village, and it was a tiny village uh, that was really unknown, really, in any other biblical writings, let alone in any uh, secular writings. It was unremarkable. If this message had not been sent there, we would not even know that Nazareth ever existed. So bad was its reputation, even in Galilee, that when Na Na the, the soon-to-be disciple Nathaniel was told that Jesus had come from Nazareth, you remember how he responded? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what people thought of this tiny little backwater town. I think about it sometimes, that if God had delayed, God had his wise purposes in having Jesus born 
when he had him born. But if he had delayed, if he had delayed in uh, 2,000 years and decided to have Jesus born today, he would not have had Jesus born in Washington, D.C., or in Los Angeles, or in London, or in Tokyo, or Beijing, or even in State College, because we are far too culturally elite and sophisticated for him to be born here in State College. You know where he would have been born, I think? Marionville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Marionville, Pennsylvania is where I was born. <laughs> Marionville, Pennsylvania is a backwater little town, about 1,000 people, no industry. That whole region is Upper Appalachia, kind of Hicksville, out in the middle of the forest. That's the kind of place that Jesus would have been born. That's the kind of place he was born in Nazareth. There's intentionality in that. It's key to the message that he was born in such a place. But the next surprise is that he didn't go to the mayor of Nazareth. I don't know if Nazareth had a mayor, but he didn't go to the Nazareth. Gabriel didn't go to the mayor. He didn't go to one of the leading elders of the town. Gabriel went to a young, unknown, unremarkable girl named Mary. Mary, who was a virgin who was betrothed to be married to a carpenter. Now, again, just in case you're not familiar with the term, betrothal was kind of like engagement, but it's like, it's like a mix of engagement and marriage where they would actually take public vows to one another before God and before people. They would vow and commit themselves for life to one another. And that mar those marriage vows that they took at the beginning of the betrothal period were as binding as marriage vows. They could only be broken by death or divorce. And then, usually after about a year, the groom would go off to earn the bride price and after about a year of being, living apart, no sexual relations, no living together, living apart, the girl would still live with her parents, then he would come at the end of that year and take his bride to himself and they would have a marriage feast. And the, they would actually then come together and have a full marriage. She had just become betrothed, which means as we know from that culture that young girls were usually betrothed very early in life usually right after they had gone into puberty. So this is, we're talking somebody between the age of 12 and 14, probably. That's how old Mary was. Young, unknown, poor. We know later that she was very poor. Her family was poor. Betrothed to a carpenter. This is the one to whom Gabriel was sent. But then it's the message. The biggest shock is the message. And you could only imagine for this young girl how this must have hit her like a thunderbolt. Gabriel says to her, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call him Jesus. Now we do, as we'll see next week, Mary knew scripture. She had been well-trained in the word. She was, a, she was a young woman of faith. And she may well have picked up on this right away. But what's amazing is that the wording of Gabriel's announcement to her is almost identical to the wording of that very famous prophecy of the coming of the Messiah that was given 800 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, when he said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call, shall call his name Emmanuel. 
You hear the same language as what Gabriel said to Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Of course, Emmanuel means God with us. And we're going to see that that's the same as what the meaning of Jesus was, the name Jesus. The impending birth of the Messiah would not have shocked, that announcement would not have shocked Mary too much because that's what all faithful Jews believed, that God had promised through generation upon generation that one day he would send a deliverer, that he would send a Messiah, one who would reign, put away all their suffering and all their enemies once and for all, and reign over an eternal kingdom. That had been promised, and they had held on to that promise, and they had prayed for that and waited for that for generations. But the shock would have been to Mary, how could it be me? How could I be the mother of this Messiah? I am an unknown, unimportant, insignificant person living in what really in my culture is a shameful little unknown and forgotten town. I'm reminded of what J.C. Ryle said in his commentary on this passage. He said, everything about Jesus' birth shows an utter absence of what the world calls greatness. Everything about the birth of Christ shows an utter absence of what the world calls greatness. This is the indication that not only would the Messiah be fully human, but he would be a human who lives in obscurity much of his life, who comes from very humble backgrounds, who does not have any inherited greatness to himself as he came into the world as a human being. But he came into a shameful, disgraceful setting, environment. And it spoke to the fact of what we will see as his purpose in coming, which was to come in humility, to suffer and to die. But the greater shock of Gabriel's message to Mary was in the rest of, of what he said, where he talks about the deity of the Messiah. This is something that first century believers who believed the Old Testament promises, from what we can tell, seem to not have understood that not only would this Messiah, when he came, be fully human, but he would also be fully God. Mary says in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's a very reasonable question. How is this possible? We still know of no way for a woman by herself to have a child. It's impossible. The angel's answer gives no biological or metaphysical specifics to satisfy our curiosity. How could and how did this happen? Matter of fact, you know, still, I, when I marvel and I read about scientific accounts of the birth process, as much as we know, and we know so much these days about medicine, about biology, the birth process is still greatly a mystery, in spite of being one of, probably one of the most studied things that we have. And here we have something that not only is already a mystery, but something that's impossible. The Holy Spirit only says to Mary, the Holy, Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Now, he's not intending to give us any kind of mental image of how this miraculous birth in the womb of a virgin girl is going to happen. What he's doing there is he's using language that harkens back to the very beginning of Scripture. When he talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and overshadowing her, he's alluding to Genesis 1, where it talks about the original creation of the universe. And it says there that the earth was out form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering or overshadowing the face of the waters. He's saying this is the same Holy Spirit that was involved in the creation of the universe. If this Holy Spirit can create the universe out of nothing, along with the Father and the Son, then you better believe that he can create a human being in the womb of a virgin girl. The mind-blowing significance of this is seen in the second half of verse 35, where Gabriel says, Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Two essential truths in that short phrase. This miraculous child formed in the womb of Mary would both be holy and the son of God. Holy is essential because that means being born in that way. He is born without original sin. He is born without a sin nature. Therefore, from the point of conception, remember David said from the point of conception, he was a sinner. Jesus could say from the point of conception, he has been holy. He has been righteous. He has been perfect in thought, word, and deed. He was without sin. But he also would be the son of God. Not the son of God in the sense of a being or creature that's created by God, but a son of God in the sense of eternity. The eternal, only begotten son of God that this child would, in some greatly mysterious way, be both fully human and fully divine. All the fullness of the deity dwelt bodily in Christ, as Paul would put it later. He would be both God and man. He would be one person with two distinct natures and no mixing of those natures. Theologians have wrestled to understand those truths for centuries. No one can get their brain around that. But it's what the angel Gabriel, who stood in the very presence of God and was sent by God to give us truth, this is what he tells us is true about the birth of Jesus Christ, that he was born fully human and fully God. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? If you do, it must change your life. Do you believe all the implications of believing in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he was fully God and fully man? One person with two distinct natures. Phil Riken, in his commentary on this passage, said, only the virgin birth preserves both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm going to take you back to the key phrase in this entire passage as you wrestle with believing this is being true or not. The key verse in this whole passage is verse 30, 37 where Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe it or don't you? If you believe that nothing is impossible with the creator God of the universe, then you believe 
what Gabriel has told us about Jesus Christ, who he is. The foundation of the gospel that we believe and we preach is the identity of Jesus Christ. He is both son of man and son of God. But God's message for humanity is fulfilled and completed in the mission that Christ was given. And that is alluded to, although not clearly spelled out in Gabriel's gospel here. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Mary didn't name her baby. Joseph didn't name her baby, his baby. God named this baby because the name of this child would be its mission, his mission. Jesus was a very common name in the first century in Judea. There were a lot of little Jesuses running around. What that means is that these people had hope. People named their child Jesus because the name Jesus means the Lord is our salvation. It spoke to their hope that this promised Messiah that all the prophets had talked about was coming. And they put their hope in the coming of this Messiah. But God said, you're going to name this baby Jesus because he is the Messiah. The Lord is our salvation. Now, we know that back then, when people talked about salvation, that idea had gotten kind of corrupted over time. Back then, the idea of salvation was salvation from sickness, salvation from poverty, salvation from despair. That's really the same kind of salvation that people are looking for today, isn't it? But the name given to Jesus says he's not going to be a political Messiah. He wouldn't have been born in Nazareth if he was going to be a political Messiah. He wasn't going to be a military Messiah. He wasn't born in Jerusalem or Rome. He was going to be a different kind of Savior. As Gabriel would later tell Mary's betrothed husband, Joseph, he said also to Joseph, just to make sure that Joseph didn't try to come in and change the name of the child, he made sure that Gabriel told Joseph, said to him, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the salvation that mankind needed. Salvation from the power of sin. Salvation from the penalty of sin. Salvation from the presence of sin. That's the kind of salvation that people need. That's the kind of salvation that people need to hear about that's available in this Jesus Christ. Salvation from the power of presence and penalty of sin. You see, that's why the Messiah had to be both God and man so that he could live a perfect human life without sin and thought, word, and deed from the point of conception until death. He could live a perfect life, the only human being ever to have done that. He had to be both God and man for that to happen. But he also had to be both God and man so that the life, the human, the perfect human life that he offered up as a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice on the cross as he was crucified so that that sacrifice would be of infinite worth, therefore able to pay for the sins of all of God's people of every age. And so he had to be both fully God and fully man. And when he was raised from the dead, and he was, he was victorious over 
the power and the presence of sin in our lives, victorious over death, the penalty that sin deserves. In this passage, we meet the very first evangelist of the New Covenant era in Gabriel. And we also meet the first Christian of the New Covenant era in Mary. We see that in the way that she responded. First of all, we see it in the way that she was approached. Did you hear carefully what Gabriel said to Mary when he came to her? He said in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. O favored one. The old Latin translation, the Vulgate, translates that full of grace. That's where that uh, Roman Catholic prayer, Mary full of grace, comes from. But it doesn't mean that she was a dispenser of grace. What it means is she was a recipient of grace. She was a receiver of great grace from God. That's what Gabriel was saying. Later on, she, he says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God chose her by his grace. She did not go, she did not fill out a resume wanting to be the mother of the Messiah. She didn't go seeking the job. God came to her. He always deals with us by grace. Grace always comes first. But the result, the absolutely inevitable result of God's grace invading our lives is that we respond in faith. Because that's what he does. He regenerates us and gives us the gift of faith. And that's what happened to Mary. You see it in verse 38. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That is a profession of faith. She is receiving, embracing, believing this gospel that Gabriel has announced to her. She believed the message. She trusted not only in the messenger, but in the source of the message, the God who sent it. And then she willingly submitted her whole life to living according to that message. Committed herself entirely let it be unto me according to your word. That faith that she expressed was going to lead to suffering. As Simeon would later prophesy, Mary's child would be opposed by his enemies and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Simeon said to her. She would grieve the loss of her reputation. She would grieve the rejection and crucifixion of her son. But because of her faith in the message, her faith in the Messiah, she was willing to take up her cross and follow Christ. Later in Jesus' ministry, during his public ministry, Luke tells us in chapter 11 that a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you. Blessed is Mary. And Mary said that she would be blessed forever. Remember how Jesus responded to that cry though? He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary was not saved because of her calling to be the mother of the Messiah. Mary was saved from the power, the presence, and the penalty of her sin because she believed the message that Gabriel gave to her. Do you believe this message? Do you believe that an angel really appeared in the first century to this young Jewish woman 
Do you believe that the message of the angel Gabriel that Luke records for us is absolutely a message that was sent from God? Is this the Jesus that you claim to follow? The virgin-born Messiah, fully God, fully man, who alone is able to save us from our sins and who reigns eternally already as the King of kings and Lord of lords and one day will return to make all things perfect. Is that the Jesus you believe in? There is an old Christian song came out many years ago back when Rich Mullins was still alive, which was a long time ago. He died as a young man, but Rich Mullins did a song called Creed. And that song, I love that song because it's basically a paraphrase of the Apostles' Creed. Every verse is a part of the Apostles' Creed, including the verse that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That part of the Apostles' Creed, he includes that in the song. But the chorus of the song that really drives the message home, the chorus written by Rich Mullen says, and I believe what I believe, it makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. It's the very truth of God. And it's making me. I didn't make it. Gabriel didn't make it. Mary didn't make it. Luke didn't make it. God made it. It's his truth, his gospel. And people need to hear it or they're gonna die under the penalty of their sins and pay for it eternally. Sometimes when I listen to Christians in Hollywood or Christians that are professional athletes or Christians that are politicians, and I try not to be judgmental because I don't know, it, it takes an incredible amount of boldness to speak about your faith, knowing that you're gonna be attacked from all sides when you do it. But it does trouble me that so often, matter of fact, vast majority of the time when they talk about Christianity and what it means to them, they'll say, my faith is important to me. My faith is important to me. And my faith has gotten me through some really tough times. That's the way they talk. And I understand that to them, it's a code word for Jesus. But it's only the message about who Jesus is and why he came that's gonna save anybody else. Jesus is important to me. Jesus has gotten me through my tough times. Jesus is the one that I depend upon. Jesus is real. Jesus is arisen from the dead. Jesus is sitting on the throne and Jesus is coming again. And that's changed my life. And that's the truth that people need to hear. It's absolutely true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking into the darkness. Thank you that what was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. And Lord, nothing has changed except the philosophies and worldviews and religions of men. But Lord, it ultimately comes back to that same question, what is truth? Lord, we have staked our lives in this world and our lives in eternity on the fact that what Gabriel came to announce is absolutely true, not just for us, but for everyone. Lord, may dwelling on that, meditating upon that in this Christmas season, drive us to be more faithful, 
to tell the truth to others who desperately need to hear it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.